Hello and welcome to the Crisis of Faith podcast with Joe and Drew. Uh, today's a very special and wonderful episode. We're in our marriage and sex and family and uh, all things saucy uh, series of talks, uh, all interviews actually. And today we are joined by the wonderful, brilliant, uh, funny and fun Justin Pearl. I can't wait for you to hear from him. We talk a lot about the American family. Uh, perhaps you would even consider it to be the idol of the American family in the uh, evangelical church and American Christianity. Uh, but I think you're really, really going to enjoy this conversation. I'd love it if you would subscribe while you're here, you're listening. You might as well say, hey, next time there's an episode, I'd love to hear that episode. Uh, and also, in our next episode, we're going to be joined by Blair of Talk Purity to Me. That's next week. Um, you're not going to want to miss that. So, uh, again, subscribe. Tell your friends about the podcast. And uh, here's a little sexy jingle to get us in before you hear from our friend Justin Pearl. Preacher, do we really need to talk about all these bedroom things? pandemic's still here feels like a race war is near but sure let's talk about the bible and sex wings preacher is god really this obsessed with everyone's sex life like he's got nothing better to do than to go peeping on you to make sure it's only ever hetero missionary style cryptocurrency and whatever else we talk about today <laughs> you, you say that but i just started investing in cryptocurrency two days ago because my brother Dude. wanted to do it as like a fun brother project <laughs> are you kidding me the podcast has begun <laughs> my brother called me the other day and he's like dude let's get in on dogecoin is that what you're investing in so he originally said Dogecoin. I'm convinced that Dogecoin was a thing and it's not going to do anything. Um, okay. so right now I'm just in Bitcoin and I'm hoping to go to Ethereum because I think Ethereum is going to be the big one for like the next six to eight months. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm in the game now. Uh, as far as I know, like you can only use cryptocurrency to buy like cargo shorts and tribal tattoos and stuff. Um, but, you know, I can get into that stuff. <laughs> like... Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, we just got in it like two days ago, too. Awesome. But my brother is, I mean, he, he's all about Elon. He says, he says what, Elon, what Papa Elon says goes. And Elon says, let's, let's make Dogecoin the like, craziest joke in internet history. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Like With that together with the, the GameStop fiasco, it's basically just like, the line between like funny joke memes and high finance is now completely blurred, which is like, it's very 2021. Well, and it kind of should have been, I think this isn't really the podcast, um, but, <laughs> but I think it should have been for a while. I think like the Wolf of Wall Street thing for me, like it, it pulls back the veil and says the, all of those dudes were just bros. They just weren't on Reddit. Like <laughs> it's the same exact thing. I don't know. There, there's always these, uh, like there's two types of people in the world. That's it's it is always ends up being kind of binary in this. Have you ever seen the movie De The Departed? Long time ago. Okay, well, to, The Departed, like the whole plot line, the whole concept of the movie is like one guy's an undercover cop who goes to work with the mob, and one guy's an undercover mo undercover mob who goes to work for the cops. And what you basically see is like it's the same kinds of people in both worlds trying to do the same kinds of things. Like one of them are playing by society's rules and the other are breaking all of society's rules, but they're the same people. Uh, <laughs> in, there's good people in the mob and there's good people in the police force and there's bad people in the mob and bad people in the police force. And I think, I think that's what like the Reddit cryptocurrency revolution uh, is, is showing is like, yeah, there's some broy like, ugly people making ugly things happen over there just like there are in the stock market and there's some good people too like <laughs> and it might all work like <laughs> wealth begets wealth the rich will get richer <laughs> that's isn't it also though like uh, it's it's the fruit of um hipsterism right where you only like things ironically to the point that those ironic things then become in <laughs> 
right? That's absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't think of a good example right now, but there are a ton of them. You're 100% correct. And I, I so, think that in some ways the stock market and like high finance is sort of perfectly designed for that hipster aesthetic in the sense that like a stock doesn't go up when a comp company is objectively more valuable. It comes, it goes up when it appears to be more valuable. It is a, it is a world of pure appearance. Uh, and in a world of pure appearance, I think the hipster is king. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the title of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> in the world of pure appearance the hipster is king so hey we are here with justin levitt pearl uh who's the director of the atkins center of ethics at carlo university um and also happens to be a good friend of mine uh that's not just showbiz talk he is he he quaker married me uh just recently and um yeah possibly, so, possibly to your sister <laughs> sister. Um, so you if if you're a faithful listener christian you've heard me the last couple of episodes talk about this um bible study curriculum that i've been developing with a friend <clears throat> over the last year or so and we're going to be teaching during lent so uh justin is that that friend and colleague we've been working on this um, curriculum called on the mountain of god so while you're here uh any thing you want to tell people about that yeah so uh this curriculum i think for for me and i i think for you joe that you'd probably agree with this is something that came out of a general impulse that i had which is that when i do religious education what i find is that a lot of the people i'm working with like a lot of the congregation that i work with they know a lot of Bible stories, uh, which is, is good. Uh, like a lot of them are, are fairly well, well read in that regard, but they always know these stories as like a million discrete stories with no bridges connecting any of them. Uh, and this is something that I found made it really hard to look at some of the, the bigger issues and the bigger questions that, that run through the biblical text and following these, these threads in interesting and provocative and powerful ways. And so what I really wanted was a curriculum that would be focused on the idea of building a singular narrative that runs through the text where you can, you can really trace a line that ties in, you know, what does David have to do with Jesus, have to do with Abraham, have to do with the Garden of Eden, have to do with, you know, the apocalyptic stuff that you find in Revelation? How do all of these really distinct, really different ways of thinking and writing uh, how are they in any sense part of one story? And that's that's really the, uh, at least for me, that was the goal of putting together this this project uh, on the mountain of God. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly it. I mean, I think that's what we what we harped about and wanted. We looked. We didn't want to write this really. We looked around for you know other other resources we could use to um, to do it and couldn't find anything. Couldn't find people that were doing this sort of stuff. So really excited about that. You can um, register at bit.ly slash SCT Mountain, uh, which will be in the show notes. And there's a, uh, for, for you listeners, you can use the um, promo code crisis to get 10% off. That class does start, I think a week after this uh, episode will air. So Monday, the 15th, February 15th, um, of 2021. Cool. So, um, yeah, but we didn't just bring you here, Justin, to do a commercial <laughs> curriculum. Um, we we're doing, we're in the middle of this series where we're talking about, um, sexuality and gender and purity culture and all things sexy. Um, and you wrote a paid, delivered a paper at the College Theology Society last year titled The Antisocial Christ, Luke Against the Family, in which you argue that for Jesus, the very most important thing is strengthening the American family, right? <laughs> exactly exactly yeah uh focus on the family has nailed it uh this is what it's all about uh have as many kids as possible uh produce your christian army 
Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah. So in this article, what I, I really want to do is I want to look at Luke particular in particular. I think this is something that runs throughout the New Testament. I think you see these themes in a lot of places, not everywhere. There are important uh, places where this isn't the narrative, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and things like that. But particularly in Luke, what you find is a narrative where Jesus doesn't just seem passively uninterested in the family. He seems actively antagonistic to the notion of the family that there is something that seems deeply threatening to the gospel about families. And Jesus really uh, comes out sort of guns blazing against the family. I, th I thought like, this is the line that really opened it up for me. Uh, so this is Luke 14, 26. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Um, like what? What do we do with what do we do with that? Like what? What do we do with that sentence? It's because you know you can go to Matthew. Matthew is a little nicer. Matthew reframes it. Whoever um, loves their father and mother more than me is what Matthew says. But that's not what Luke says. Luke says that if you want to be a disciple, hate your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. What do we do with that? And this is this is where I started. Was how uh, let's let's do the work to try to make sense of of this passage without stripping it of its power and its force. Um, because I think that's really, really important. How do we maintain the force of this teaching uh, and make sense of it uh, in our world uh, as well as in Jesus's first century world? I'll tell you what we did. I mean, with that in my tradition, the tradition that I grew up in, which was very focused on the family heavy, um, like we were, you know, watched McGee and me and played sticky situations and all that sort of stuff. Like, you know, big, big focus on the family people. And we read that passage and said, well, in, in this context, the way the Greek, of course, nobody read this, right? The way the Greek works, hate actually meant to love less. <laughs> um, so we just sort of denied that it said what it said. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think that's, I, I think that's, the most common approach to this. Um, the problem there is that missane just means hate. Uh, missane is just the most basic Greek word that just simply means to hate something. There, is, there isn't a, a different word that means, means uh, hate in a more direct or literal sense. Like Jesus is saying hate. He seems to be saying hate at least. Well, I mean, we, we have to throw in here too, like Jesus doesn't have a family like he he when he's here when when god is here in the flesh and you got to think he's got some opportunities you know as a, he's got some groupies around like somebody's got to be interested in the messiah um and he elects to not start a family and have kids and not model this and then we have after that we have the apostle paul who also chooses the same path and speaks out in similar fashion, I mean, he, he does actually kind of relent a little bit and says like, well, if you got to get married, like if you can't keep it in your pants, I guess get married. But he doesn't he doesn't advocate it. He's not for it. He's basically against it. So, you know, on top of just these actual words of Jesus and knowing that he did say hate, he did say <laughs> like the model of the two people, at least in the evangelical community that we would say matter the most. Well, they didn't get married. And they didn't speak very highly of the concept either. Like this, these things are pretty clear. Sure, you obviously didn't read the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> and, and I think that's actually a, a funny point because some of the work that I've been working on, uh, I've looked at things like the Da Vinci Code because there have been these attempts to reread a family back into Jesus. And I think part of it comes from this discomfort. Like, what do we do with this seemingly single guy? Uh, walking around without, as far as we know, a uh, wife or children. Uh, how do we make sense of that in the medieval world, in, in the ancient world even? Uh, families were really, really important. The idea that the family doesn't matter, I think in our culture, um, it's like an edgy thing to say. It's like kind of like, like that's like, like, oh, cool. Like you're saying, you know, that families aren't important because uh, I'm, I'm super rad or whatever. Um, but in the ancient world, like this is a political claim. Um, this is disrupting the, the deepest foundation. For them, the family was the core of what became the city and what becomes the state and the empire. 
Um, and so to say that families are in some sense not important or that they're secondary to whatever this project of the gospel that Jesus is advocating for, that's a revolutionary claim. That's a, a dangerous thing to say. So I, that might lead us into like, what do you think is at the root of this for Jesus or at least Luke's Jesus? Um, why? Why so against the family? Yeah. So, so as, as I talk, I'm, I'm going to probably mostly talk about Luke because I don't want to, I don't want to say too much of like what Jesus, what Jesus says. I'll say what, what I think Luke is trying to say. And I think what Luke is trying to do is make a couple of different claims at the same time. One of the really big ones is he is, he is trying to assert the idea of Jesus being the son of God in a really, really strong sense. So you see this, for example, in his genealogy. If you look at the genealogy in Matthew, uh, you have these like nice little clean blocks of 14 generations, you know, that take you back um, and uh, back to David, back to Abraham. Uh, it, it, it all maps out really, really nice. Um, and, it, and it very thoroughly situates Jesus within that familial tradition. This is Abraham, and then you have David, and then you have the exile, uh, and they're all separated by 14 generations, and there's some cool numerology stuff around the name David that's connected to that. Uh, and, and it's just sort of screaming, you know, Davidic bloodline is being sort of screamed at every moment in that genealogy. Uh, what Luke does is something different. He sort of runs past David and past Abraham, just in passing along with everyone else. They aren't these sort of massive road, like uh, uh, roadblocks or anything. They're just, they're just among the list of people. And he traces back to David. I mean, uh, sorry, he chases back to, uh, to Adam. And then what does he say after that? And I think this is the really clear line. He says, uh, son of Adam, son of God. And I think this is a really big idea for Luke, that Luke wants to say uh, Jesus has one father, and it's the father in heaven. Um, and, and Jesus, you know, says that. He says that to his disciples. You should have one father, the one in heaven, i.e. not that guy who impregnated your mom. That is not your father. Your father is in heaven. You have one father. Therefore, we are all brothers and sisters, part of one family. So what he's doing is he's rejecting, I think, this the, the family um, the blood family in order to constitute a new way of thinking about family, which is this, this, uh, you could call it, um, some scholars call it a fictive kinship. It's the idea of, it's adoption is what we're really talking about. This idea of let's just make one family instead of having all of these other families, I'm making a new family and I'm going to invite you to be adopted into this family. Um, and you can see this, I think, all over the place. Uh, so one of the, uh, in chapter eight uh, of Luke, uh, Jesus's mom and uh, brothers show up. Uh, he's in there, he's preaching in a house and, and he's, do he's doing his, his preacher Jesus thing. Uh, and lots of people are crowding around. So they can't, the, his mother and his brothers can't get to him. Uh, and so they kind of, you know, you can kind of picture them waving down one of the disciples uh, and they say, like, go get Jesus. And the disciple goes into Jesus and says, your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting for you. And Jesus's response is to dismiss the request and say, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it, which is like a pretty brutal slap in the face, I think. Uh, and I think we're supposed to read it that way. He is, he is redefining what it means to be part of a family in a really radical sense here. So I'm curious about two things, just sort of details about that, uh, particularly in Luke. So we often hear about, you know, Joseph is a, is a primary character, especially in Matthew, but uh, even in Luke for a chapter or two, and then just drops out. And, you know, a common explanation, at least in my tradition, was, well, he died young. He, he died when Jesus was young, and so we just don't hear about him. But we're not told that he died. Like, Jesus doesn't grieve his death. Um, like, is that a rhetoric? Do you think? I mean, this is speculation, of course. Do you think that's a rhetorical ploy um, in this kind of, well, there's only one father move? And, and related to that, it's interesting that Mary is such a primary character in Luke's gospel um, really throughout. And I wonder how, how that messes with your reading. Yes. Um, I think that the, the lack of Joseph is conspicuous. And this is actually, I think, true for most of, 
for, for all the gospels, really. I mean, even Matthew, where maybe Joseph is the most conspicuous, he's still not, he's, he's in there for a couple chapters. And then he, as you said, he disappears. Um, what Luke does, I think, is um, not only does he only include him for a couple chapters, he sort of beats up on him the whole time. Uh, and I think you have to kind of look closely to see it, um, where it's it's even worse than, than like, you know, Mark just doesn't, never mentions him. And in some ways it would be nicer to not be mentioned uh, than to be sort of pushed around, which is what I think Luke ends up doing here. Uh, so th there's all kinds of examples. Um, at the beginning of the genealogy, to go back to the genealogy, it opens, he was the son, and then there's a parenthetical, as was thought of Joseph, um, which is like... <laughs> It's kind of rough. It's literally like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some dumb people think that he's Joseph's son, but wink, we know the truth, which is that Joseph doesn't matter, I think is, is part of this narrative. Um, I think the place where you see this the most clearly um, is uh, we have like that one, we have one narrative of Jesus basically between like birth or like early, early, early infancy and uh, and being like a 30 year old man. We get one story uh, and it's him going to the temple with his family uh, and they go to the temple and he's there and he's, you know, he's shockingly wise, even as a child. Um, uh, and he's sort of stunning people uh, with his, his ability to understand the scriptures. And then they all go to leave and they pack up and they leave. And you can imagine that this is, you know, we're supposed to be imagining a big caravan. Like this is the whole, this is the family in, in the big, you know, uh, ancient Near East sense. This is cousins and, and, and aunts and uncles. And it's a huge group. Uh, and Jesus wanders off from the group. And so they get a little bit away. They realize he's not there. They go back to the temple. Uh, and Mary and Joseph find Jesus in the temple. And they're like, like basically, you know, like any kid who's ever been lost in a Walmart or a grocery store, uh, they finally found him and they grab him. They're like, why, why do you do this? Like, what, why did you run off and, uh, and, and leave us here? We were worried sick about you. Like, again, you can imagine a parent in this, in this situation. Uh, and Jesus's response is, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? Which I think is a really telling response. We, he's saying this to his dad. Um, he's saying to his dad, didn't you know I would be at my real dad's house, is what I think he's saying there. Uh, and that's, that's really cutting and that's really, really biting, I think, when you read it in this context. And so Joseph is thoroughly, even when Joseph appears in the stories, he's thoroughly decentralized. He is only, he is only what the people who are wrong, um, uh, it, it's only the people who are wrong who think of Jesus as being the son of Joseph. When he goes to Nazareth, when they misunderstand him, the way that their misunderstanding is initially marked is that they say, hey, isn't this Joseph's son? And as the reader, we're supposed to say, no, no, he isn't Joseph's son. That's the whole point. That's what they don't understand. This is God's son. And so Joseph, I think, is thoroughly sidelined. As you note, though, Mary, not so much. Mary is, is given a little bit more... Um, uh, is, is, is allowed to be a figure who speaks prophetically and who seems to grasp the, um, the reality of the, the radicalness of Jesus's message. And I think because she grasps the radicalness of this message, she's allowed to participate in the story um, quite a bit more. Um, but even Mary doesn't, doesn't get off sort of scot-free. Uh, there's this great um, line uh, when Jesus is, is uh, out and about doing his preacher thing again. Um, one, one, uh, one of the disciples gets, just gets really excited uh, and, and cries out, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. Like that's, that's like, what a beautiful line. Like, like this idea that, that you, you are clearly, a, you know, a, this prophetic figure sent by God. Um, blessed is the womb that bore you. Uh, and Jesus's response is, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Uh, Blessed rather. Uh, yeah. harsh. <laughs> I'm loving so, this. Uh, I'm loving this image of, uh, I've never thought about this. I actually just heard um, the Catholic church declared something about St. Joseph, maybe this month. Do you know anything about that, Joe? Like this, that he's, the patron saint of the year or maybe the patron saint of last year or something. I don't know what it was. I had just never heard of, first of all, I guess I didn't know that Joseph was even a saint, um, was even considered like to have sainthood. I should know that. I know there are churches in that name and all, 
but I, I'm I'm beginning to see him now as like he's almost like a George Costanza uh, character in the whole narrative that like he doesn't get to do anything except get beat up on. Like he, from what we could tell, he never he didn't do anything wrong. He just like oh by the way, um, your soon to be wife she's pregnant. It's not yours. Deal with it or you know there's hell to pay or whatever like is and then after that he he has to like have this kid and this kid is constantly reminding him that he's not his real dad and then and then, yeah so i i don't know it's an interesting perspective for me because i've never given much thought to joseph and, and i think you're right to point out that he doesn't do anything wrong and so this is why why i think there's there's something really theologically interesting here is that that I think Luke is making a theological point and not like a moral point. Like the idea here isn't to think like, Joseph, what a jerk. You know, the, the few scenes Joseph is in, though though the text I think is sort of constantly undermining his, his sort of patriarchal authority throughout those. Nonetheless, uh, he's a good dude. You know, he's got, he's got this, uh, uh, this fiance who pops up pregnant, not because of him. Um, and he's, he, his first thought is, um, I'm going to break off, I'm gonna break off the marriage. But he's, he's really, even, even in that moment, he's cautious about it. He's like, I'm going to do it quietly. I don't want to, I don't want to cause a big thing in this. We're just going to, we're just going to quietly. So he seems respectful. He seems kind to Mary. The angel comes to him and says, actually, like, this is like a miracle baby. So, you know, uh, uh, be, you know, be the dad for this, for this baby. And he's just like, okay, cool. I guess I'm on board now. Um, so yeah, he's, he's, seems like a really good dude. Uh, and so this is actually, I think a really important point. Because I think that Luke's point throughout this, and I think there's a way of misreading what I want to suggest is happening here, uh, is not that like your parents are terrible, like, you know, flip off your parents, move out of the house, you know, whatever. Uh, this, is not the, this is not the message that I think Luke is, is trying to suggest because Luke is not suggesting that individual parents are bad because Mary seems great, Joseph seems great, Rather, what I think he, that is, is running through this is an idea that there's something about the patriarchal structure of the family and about the way that authority manifests within a blood family. And I think maybe even more importantly, the way loyalty manifests within a family structure um, that, that needs to be put into question and that Jesus's notion of a radical new form of kinship, a new community of believers is going to be an alternative to that. And so I think it's it's a structural critique. It's something about about the way that we think about fatherhood and motherhood. It's not literally like mothers and dads are all bad and, and you should hate them just as people or something along those lines. So uh, you may have just invited us into this uh, to an answer to the question I'm going to ask, but um, you started by saying, well, you know, what is Luke's deal with the family? And part of it is this theological claim that Jesus is the son of God. He has to undermine Jesus's other family in order to make this claim. Um, but it sounded like there was more on that list. So is, is that kind of the second point that there's a structural cr critique of the loyalty structures and the patriarchal structures? And can you say more about how that functions? Yeah. So I, uh, yes, I think that it's, it's in some ways it's about, uh, about, Faith understood in some way as loyalty. This is something I talk a lot with my students about, is that when you encounter the word faith, um, we've so sort of thoroughly, you know, sacralized or, or churchized that word. Faith is a church word. You know, there's these, these certain things. When, I, when I'm talking to, to little kids, I always call them the churchy words. There are certain churchy words, uh, and they mean something very specific in a church context. And I think the problem with that is that we can't see how it connects to other non-churchy contexts. Uh, and so what I often encourage my students to do is when you encounter the word faith, ask yourself, what does this passage mean if you replace faith with loyalty or allegiance? Because I think that's at the root of what's happening in, uh, in the biblical text when they talk about faith. It's not about cognitive belief. Uh, and you see this, you know, um, people often talk about the fact that the if it's about cognitive belief, then all the demons are the most believing people in the Gospels. Uh, because the second Jesus shows up, they say, you're the son of God. What are you doing here? Like uh, the, the reason that the demons are demons uh, in the Gospel uh, is not because they um, 
they don't have a cognitive belief about the 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 unique authority and divinity of of the Christ. It's rather that they aren't aligned to him. They don't have loyalty to him. They're not part of that crew. They're not on that side. They're not on that team. And so I think part of what's what's happening here is this question about whose team are you on? And that Luke, I think, has a strong inclination that if your first allegiance is to blood and family, then this can get really, really dangerous. And I think you see the way that this can get really dangerous. You know, only go back a couple of years to white supremacists marching in Charleston. Uh, and what are they chanting? They're chanting blood and soil. That for them, this blood relationship becomes absolutely central. And because of that, it is able to overcome what we would, what, what we might see as a larger notion of, to use MLK's term, the beloved community. Um, so they, they can't see how they could possibly be in relation to people of other races, because you're not part of my family. And I think that's the kind of structural allegiance that Luke wants to undermine. He wants to say, no, 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 no. We are going to have a primary allegiance to this new kind of community that is built on love and acceptance and, and care for the poor and the marginalized injustice. That's our primary allegiance. And we need to make our, our allegiance to blood and family secondary to that. So uh, I'm curious about how that cashes out. Um, you know, Luke is writing in this context where, um, you know, 40 or so years after Jesus, um, after the death of Jesus, when the um, when the Christian community is moving, is shifting rapidly from an all Jewish movement to a primarily mostly Gentile community, uh, and so they're having to sort of re-understand what does allegiance to to this movement, this this Christ, mean um, apart from its relation to this uh ethnic family uh, the the jewish family um and so you know all of the there's so much hand-wringing in the new testament about like how do we figure all that out and, and luke's staking a claim within that um but how does that cash out now in, in two thousand years later um when what you what you have is when the white supremacists are are marching in Charlottesville, they're not—they're um, not a, a family in any discernible sense, right? They—they they actually have um, a kind of a kind of community. They hated community, right? Uh, like a kind of community that that's built around a common allegiance. Um, so, like, how does that how does that work in? in Christianity, when you're talking about like, okay, well, realign your allegiances to this community. Well, what happens when that community becomes the problem and becomes the exclusionary and the authoritarian structure? Yeah, so I, I, I think I, I catch what, what you're, you're asking. Um, is, and part of this, I think, underlying this, just to, to make it really explicit, I think part of your question is the idea that most of those white supremacists who are marching probably consider themselves Christians. Uh, that they are marching on behalf of Christianity. So that so in a certain sense, their primary allegiance is to Christianity. And here, I think that we need to, to really think about a distinction that somebody like Soren Kierkegaard, uh, he was a Danish philosopher in the, uh, in the um, 19th century, um, who's really influential on, on the work that I, I'm doing in this project. And one of the distinctions he makes is between what he calls Christianity and Christendom. That for him, Christendom is this, this way that, uh, that the Christian community um, sort of sedimented into a political and social, um, at, often an ethnic community. And it rigidified and it set up its borders and it locked itself down. And this manifests ecclesially in the, in the way that we have now very rigid church hierarchical structures. Uh, in most of our churches and denominations. And, and it can manifest you know, racially in the United States when the white church wants to lock out people of color from our uh, community. And what I would wanna do is I would wanna make a distinction between 
the adoptive family that Jesus is inviting people to be part of, um, and this in this this idea of of a Christendom, that there is a a radical edge to to the Luke and Jesus, which is that this new community that we're forming it is going to cross ethnic bounds. That is structurally part of this community. So Jesus will be, you know, he'll be talking about the faith of, of, of Roman centurions as outdoing the faith um, of, of the locals. Um, that, you know, somebody like Paul is going to say, neither uh, Jew nor Greek, we are all one in Christ. And that, that the idea of this being a, an ethnically diverse community, a uh, community centered on love and a community centered on justice, this is what your allegiance is to. Your allegiance isn't to the name Christianity. Your allegiance is to the justice and the love and the inclusion um, that is being, at least at times, spoken in the name of God, even if in other times the name of God is used as a signifier for hate and exclusion and violence. Yeah, I've, this is raising something kind of a different direction, but just a an interesting uh, thought experiment for me when I think about this, like what, what separates Christianity here? Like what, what is the, what about Christianity leads to this Christendom concept? And I think there is a, um, it's been a subject of this podcast a lot. It's been a subject of my conversations with my, my church family a lot recently. It's evangelism, right? Well, we don't have um, the same type of evangelism in Judaism, in Islam, in, in any other world traditions, not really in the same way that we're kind of trying to grow the family by anybody who will, you know, become a part. And whenever you get into a place like in the United States where it's kind of like, you know, if you want to ascend to power, it's probably important that you at least acknowledge the Christians, at least nod in their direction. And if we're being honest about it, like we've never had a president who didn't profess to be a Christian. We've never had um, Kamala is about the closest we've ever come to even having a vice president that, and I think, is she Jewish? Am I wrong about that? She is, uh, she has both Hindu and Christian uh, background. Oh, okay. Well, it's hard to tell in my evangelical circles, like we thought I was told that Obama was Muslim for like three or four years. So it's, it's hard to tell where I get the information that I get. But you get what I'm saying here, though, that, that evangelism plays this major role in Christianity that we kind of create this. Um, it is a family. It is about, quote, love and inclusion and an invitation of all people to join it. So pretty much anybody could become a Christian. Uh, and in that, you know, in a developed world in the capitalistic society that we have, you start to see this sort of leaning, like the weight starts to tilt more in the direction of, um, I don't know, why, why is it a big thing for white supremacy, even though Jesus wasn't white, <laughs> like not even close, and it didn't come from a part of the world where white people even come from, and it didn't, I, I think the way that we have done evangelism has been that thing, like, this it's the marketing christianity has fantastic marketing we have our own chicken like <laughs> you, it's the <laughs> i just got <laughs> <laughs> we we have our own music we have our own chicken we have chick-fil-a is our chicken i don't know where you're from justin if you're if you're not if you're not in the south maybe you don't know that we have our own chicken uh, I, I, so this is, uh, this might be shocking. I've, I have been to a Chick-fil-A, um, but I've never had Chick-fil-A chicken. Uh, I have had their iced tea though. It was pretty good. They're Dude, good. They're sweet tea it makes me, you ill. wouldn't I, believe. I like oh, really? But, See, I yeah. think there's something about homophobia that just, it does a chicken. Well, it really does. <laughs> um, I don't, I, I, I have boycott i actually like have been led by my children into some i think good activism they they boycotted uh chick-fil-a and so i also boycotted chick-fil-a now for them i tell my kids constantly i try to convince them now this is something i genuinely believe uh in this area i, I think that one thing chick-fil-a does possess is like quality control 
like pretty much everywhere you go, you get the same level of quality. You don't get that with Popeyes uh, or with Bojangles. They don't have as good of a quality control thing going on. But whenever you get a good one, and in this area, we have good Bojangles and good Popeyes. I think I've almost got my kids convinced that those places are better, but they don't have play places. And that's all that matters at this point. Like that, that's what is getting locked in for, for my kids is like the Popeye's chicken is better. It's definitely superior, dad. You're, you're right. If we're doing carry out, let's do Popeye's. But if we're sitting in the restaurant, not in COVID times, but in normal times, like what am I going to slide on? Can't slide in this Louisiana kitchen. You're using the word quality control. I think the proper term is purity culture. (laughs) So I'm curious, um, this might be outside of the scope of your your research on this, Justin. Um, And just for the listener, we're we're having, I'm really excited about this. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have a conversation uh, with Kristen Copes-Dumay, who's the author of uh, Jesus and John Wayne, just a huge um, book right now that a lot of people are, are finding energy around. And I think she'll have a lot to say about this, but I, I'm curious, um, like, how do we get from the Jesus of Luke's gospel and from what is in a lot of the New Testament, maybe we'll talk about where the New Testament deviates from this some, um, to James Dobson and to like, really for, for me in my community growing up, it was like, well, strengthening the American family, that is what Christianity is all about. Like, that's the, that's kind of the goal. That's the point. Yeah, I, I, I yes. Uh, how do you make that jump? I, I don't know, but I, I think I can give something that might be helpful here. Part of the shift, I think, happens in already in the early church. Um, I think part of the shift happens already in the New Testament. If you divide the New Testament into what we see as the earliest text and the later text, there is a demonstrable shift in the way they think and talk about the family. If you go to Ephesians and Colossians, which we think are later, they are very pro-family and it's a very patriarchal family. It's a very hierarchical family. There is the father at the top, then there's the mother, then there's the children, then there's the slaves, and everything has its proper place, and your job is to sit in that proper place. So I think it actually happens pretty early and and, and pretty quick. Um, And I think part of this has to do with what you might call like eschatological expectation, which is just fancy theology terms for the earliest church was pretty convinced they weren't going to be around very long. They were ready. Jesus is coming back any day now. You can see this in the way that Jesus, I mean, sorry, uh, that Paul often talks about marriage. Uh, on the one hand, he has this, this idea um, that there is something uh, higher, there's a higher calling in celibacy, what Jesus w- will call um, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew being a eunuch for the kingdom of God, which is quite an interesting uh, turn of phrase because eunuchs were, were low status. Um, that was not a good thing to be. You couldn't enter the temple uh, if you were a eunuch, for example. Uh, and and he says, no, there are eunuchs for the kingdom of God, these people who who choose celibacy. Uh, that So we have that critique, that there's something special about it. But for Paul, there's also just something sort of deeply practical. It's like, don't bother getting married. Don't get jobs. Don't do any of this stuff. Jesus is coming back in like 20 minutes, guys. Like, just chill out. We just have to worry about having faith. Um, well, you get a couple decades into don't worry, he's coming back in 20 minutes. And people are like, so like should I have a family now? Cause it's been decades. And like, I met this nice woman and like, <laughs> you know, uh, what, do, what do we do with this? And so you have this movement towards asking the question, um, well, what are we going to do practically with families? Cause there are families, you know, Luke is not arguing that there aren't mothers and fathers. There are mothers and fathers. The question is how do you relate to them socially? And so they, they reopen this question about how do we relate to the family and their solution I think is largely to adopt the norms of their culture, which I think is really disappointing. So we get these these household codes, uh, again, epitomized in Ephesians and Colossians, uh, which are basically just drawn straight out of Jewish Hellenistic culture of the time. Uh, And they just basically, they give a, you know, slight modifications. There's a little, something a little more egalitarian about them than some of the formulations you'll see elsewhere. There's an idea of love and responsibility that the father has towards the family, which is a step above just, it's my authority, I can do what I want. Um, but nonetheless, it's roughly, it is the, the cultural norms that are drawn forward and that are given sort of a Christian stamp of approval. 
Um, and, and this, I think, only intensifies as you move forward. There are certain places where this gets challenged. In medieval Europe, one of the places where this is most commonly challenged is the monastery. The monastery becomes this, you know, we like to think of monks as these stodgy people. That was a place where some, a different form of kinship could happen, where you'd have, you know, often these sort of homosocial relations. So you'd have, you know, houses of men and houses of women, uh, and they would be together with each other. And, uh, and they would be in these quasi-familial relations with one another, all in relationship to the authority of God. And it's probably not surprising that you also find uh, you know, there's there's something sort of interestingly queer that starts to emerge within these within these spaces, partially because they're homosocial. And if you're just around people who are the same uh, sex and gender as you, then you are more likely uh, to find yourself romantically attached to them. Um, but also uh, but also um, I think because they are breaking through this traditional notion of family in, in interesting and radical ways. Uh, and this comes to the point where people in political authority become really distrustful of monasteries. They don't like monasteries uh, in the Middle Ages. Why? Because that is a place where people aren't following the proper hierarchical rules. There are certain rules. You get married, you have kids, you, you do this. You produce a bunch of kids so that they can be soldiers for the state. And now you've got whole houses full of people who are saying, nah, we're not going to do that. Like, that's, that's not our calling. Uh, and that was, that, was, that was actively perceived as dangerous in the ancient world, or in the medieval world. Yeah. And, you know, so we had, on last week on the podcast, we had uh, Margaret Peterson, who was sort of tracing the same history of, of marriage and sexuality in the Christian tradition uh, and picked up kind of where you left off to say that... <clears throat> Part of what what's embedded in the the Reformation critique of spirituality is this affirmation of marriage, um, because you know in in the Middle Ages, along with the the kind of social unease about what's happening in monasteries, you also have this sense that um, there's kind of a higher way to live the spiritual life, which is this unmarried way. And which it draws on this distinction in the New Testament. You have, um, you have both in the later parts of the New Testament, um, an affirmation in some sense of the, the hierarchical family. And also in the earlier parts of the New Testament, this like real radical anti-family stuff sometimes. Uh, and it ends up with this split where you have some like sort of normal folks living the family life and doing that thing. And then really, really radically, like, invested in in Christianity, people like monks um, or or priests or whatever, living this higher calling to celibacy. And so, part of the um, critique of that of of a hierarchical spirituality uh, is an affirmation of marriage and and of family life as an equally valid way to live the Christian life. Um, that it's not a lower calling or something. And, and so in, in some sense, I wonder if that starts the ball rolling again toward, um, you know, this, that leads to James Dobson, right? Yeah, and I, I think that's exactly correct. And I think that what you get in the emergence of the religious right is this realization that this Protestant tendency to want to hold off, you know, some scholars will even go so far as to say to uh, idolize the family in, in sort of dangerous senses, uh, that they realize that, oh, this is actually politically very, very powerful. Uh, that, it, that, that the family actually in American culture in particular, uh, that this is a, a, a tool that can be used um, to gain real literal political power. Uh, so I think I've told, I, I know I've told you this story, um, Joe, uh, that um, when I was in eighth grade, I went to on a class trip down to Virginia Beach because um, we had this tradition of going on a class trip. Everyone would pile into a big bus and a bunch of stinky eighth graders with acne um, uh, would, would go someplace and just have a fun time. And they chose Virginia Beach for us. Um, and while we were there, because I was out of Baptist uh, school, um, they brought us to a taping of the 700 Club. 
um, which was a wild, wild experience. Uh, at the time, you know, I was an eighth grade kid who, you know, had grown up, uh, you know, I'd been going to this Baptist school since I was in third grade. None of this was weird to me. In retrospect, all of it was very, very weird. Um, <laughs> But the time that I went, I don't remember everything that happened during that taping. But the one thing I, I do remember, and I don't know if this was the main guest or one of the side guests, but they brought in this, this family um, and, you know, sort of blonde haired, blue eyed, like the, the family. Like if you're, if you're, if you're going to put the family into the dictionary, uh, this is the picture you put next to it. Um, uh, and so they have this perfect family come on and they're there as representations of the Quiverful movement. Um, I don't remember. Have you guys talked about Quiverful on this podcast before? I don't think so. Quiverful. Are you familiar with Quiverful? Just from you. Okay. It's the most insane thing in the world. Uh, so Quiverful is a movement that emerges out of Psalm 127. Uh, so there's this passage in Psalm 127. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. Um, so basically it's just a psalm that is talking about like having lots of kids is great. Like isn't having kids awesome? Um, but it uses this weird martial metaphor that, that children are the quivers in your arrow, uh, in your, uh, uh, sorry, are the arrows in your quiver. Um, and so what you get emerging in, I think it's the seventies or maybe eighties, uh, actually, no, I take that back. Sorry. It's the late eighties. You get the emergence of what's called the quiverful movement, um, which is basically the natalist branch of the dominionist movement. The dominionist movement basically argues, um, you know, what would make the United States great, um, if everyone was mandated by law to have to follow um, Christian morality understood in a very particular evangelical uh, vein and a, in a, a really like even within like uh, the sort of fundamentalist evangelical culture like a really right-wing version of it so they tend to be anti-democratic because uh, democracy says anyone's morals are okay no we want our morals to be okay uh, they are often pretty comfortable defending things like slavery because the bible says it's okay uh, they want to impose the death penalty as a punishment for adultery and and gay marriage and uh, some of them breaking the sabbath should be imposed uh, the death penalty should be imposed so this is a, a radical political movement for christian supremacy uh, and almost always white supremacy ends up being part of this. Um, the Quiverful movement is a is the natalist branch, which means it's the it's the childbearing branch. And their argument is basically this: if we want to achieve this, we can't just do it democratically because there aren't enough of us. Uh, so what we need to do is have lots and lots of kids because those kids in 18 years can vote. Um, and we need to literally we have to outproduce our competition until we can convert America into a right-wing state. If you read like uh, The Handmaid's Tale, that's Christian dominionism. Like that's actually what she was writing about when she originally um, wrote that, that book, when she was writing about the birth of Christian dominionism, which she was, she was recognizing around her. Uh, so this movement uh, makes the argument that, uh, that yeah, we should, we should outproduce. And so children become weapons. This is the part that I think is, is most, most telling here. Um, we need to protect the family so that we can have more weapons in our war against, and against who? Well, it's basically against people of color and queer folk. Uh, those are the people that you need weapons against. That was the, that was the thing I was wanting to address and wanted to talk about, like even just the, the nature of calling them arrows in a quiver. It's like our children are essentially weapons. They're, they're ammunition for the calls what is not clearly like what they did not foresee um <laughs> is that children aren't arrows uh <laughs> they are humans uh who grow up and they don't exactly fly in the direction you shoot them in so what we ended up with instead was uh a millennial generation and following after it a gener generation z generation that is just leaving it that's just done with it that's incredibly offended that they were ever considered as like obviously you're going to believe what we believed obviously you're going to vote for what we voted for obviously you're going to promote what we promoted um what you actually ended up with was a quiver full of you know arrows that are not interested in being arrows that are interested in pursuing their own things um i don't know what direction we want to go on this 
yet. Um, Joe, did you have something to add to that? And then I, I had a, a question about something interesting. No, go ahead. Um, you go ahead. Okay. Well, I just kind of want to, I want to pull it back to um, evangelical roots here um, to, to sort of my, my role in all of it and how I still, I still serve as an evangelical pastor and have worked in some, some large evangelical churches and actually have a lot of friends who are still teaching and preaching. And, and in our circles, um, the sermon is the highest form of anything we do. Like basically it all revolves around that. We have churches so that we can get lots of people to listen to sermons. We only have music as a buffer zone for people to walk in so that they get there for the sermon, right? We, everything that we do revolves around that. And it, it's occurred to me, like, this is a, a truly like lived experience for me over the past five years. Whenever I left the, the large church I was a part of in St. Louis, um, extremely evangelical, extremely right wing. Um, even, even while I was there, there was kind of, you know, every, anybody who knew me personally knew was like, you don't exactly fit here, do you? Um, but I didn't know how to fit anywhere else, but we came here to start this church. And, um, and we immediately had um, homosexual people joining the community, married couples um, joining the community. And I discovered very, very quickly how with the sermon being king, how incredibly difficult it becomes to preach principled. Um, and when I say principled, I mean like, here's the three points of this. Here's the three things to go out and do how it becomes more difficult to actually even create sermons, the currency of our, of, of Amer white American evangelicalism, um, when you can't assume that everybody has the same goals and the same objectives and the same family structure and the same. So it, it kind of like, it's a little less volatile and a little less angry than let's have these families so that we can take over the world and a little more practical and pragmatic that it's kind of like, well, if I can't tell you how to live in a family, like who's supposed to be in charge and what's the hierarchy, what's the structure here uh, of who's in charge, I don't know what to tell you at all. I don't even know how to do this. So we, in, we, we are in a place right now where I think there are a lot of people like me um, who are uh, cisgender white dudes uh, who are pastors there might be some women but probably not in my circle not not on not on our side of things um who are uh <laughs> i can't think of a more academic word than woke to it all <laughs> can't think of a better word but are looking around and saying this is stupid this is preposterous this violates jesus in all the ways we've talked about so far it violates paul um who who is like king of, of evangelicalism they love paul more than they love jesus um what do we do? Like, how, how do we look forward and say, okay, can we still have churches where the sermon is king? Can we still teach this principled thing that, that, I, that, that we find valuable? Now, I, un I understand in less evangelical circles how the sermon isn't king anymore. It, it, but we are in a place where I think that the shifting of it all, the, all the people who have left the church and are looking for something in my circles, they're looking for that. They still want that communicating, teaching almost rabbinical kind of structure. Um, but, you know, how, how do we begin to approach this with a totally different lens and a totally different, like, well, I can't teach you principles for your family. I can't teach you principles for your finance. Like we're not all moving in the same direction. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and what I think that you're pointing to is the fundamental lie at the, at the core of family values um, of the family values ideology. Uh, and that fundamental lie is that there is a certain type of family. Uh, and that family uh, has, a, uh, has a father uh, and a mother and 2.5 kids and a white picket fence and probably a dog or maybe a cat if they're terrible. Um, uh, and, and that's the family. And what happens is when you actually talk to people, you realize that there are families with one parent and family with, with, with queer parents and families without kids and families with kids and families with adopted kids uh, and families where the kids are actually taking care of the parents because the parents are ill uh, and, you know, families where, uh, you know, they're just, there's a diversity of types of families and, 
you have to you you have to ignore that uh, if you want to uphold the the ideology of family values. This is why um, it's so absolutely important for family values to insist that there is something deeply deeply wrong with being queer. They must insist that there's something deeply wrong. Why? Because they can't produce kids. They can't produce those arrows that they need so very very badly. So even if you have queer folks in your church and those those people are are saying we want to be part of the Christian church um, no matter how you know orthodox or conservative they want to be they can't live into what you are at least asking people to pretend is the norm they can't even pretend it because it doesn't fit their lived experience uh, and so uh, family values Christianity has to exclude them it has to keep them out of the door um, that becomes becomes central to it so I wonder if we, I think we're probably getting close to wrapping up because we've been at this for about an hour. Um, but I'm really interested to maybe shift gears. Maybe this is kind of where we land. I don't know. Um, that there is this notion of the church family, right? Um, which is, I think, I mean, in some ways it, it, coheres with the kind of thing that you're that you're claiming is happening in Luke at least Luke and Acts where you have um you're undermining the like the actual blood family structure in order to create this new community that will function as a family outside of that structure um I mean that seems seems like the church family fits that model um but you know, and, and there's something really beautiful about it, right? When you um, have surgery and can't like get up and get around as well, and you have people coming to your house every day bringing a home cooked meal, like that's that's amazing, and it's also homogenizing and invasive and really dangerous. And so, like, how do we kind of deal with that? Yeah, uh, I, I think that's right. And I think it's it's really easy, you know, admittedly, I provocatively entitled my presentation The Antisocial Jesus, um, which we haven't mentioned this, I'll just mention in passing is, is a reference to um, a certain type of queer theory, a certain, a certain group of scholars uh, who refer to themselves as, as antisocial queer theorists. Um, uh, so I, I'm being provocative. Um, and, and I recognize that. And I think it can come across uh, the way that I talk that maybe I, I hate the church, for and, and, and I don't, um, I don't, sometimes I, well, sometimes I do. <laughs> uh, sometimes I watch the news and I'm like, you know what the worst thing in the world is Christianity. Um, but other times I watch the news and I say, there it is, that's it. And I think what I find really helpful here is a notion by um, the, the, uh, the theologian, um, St. Augustine. Um, so St. Augustine, one of his last things he did was this gigantic thick book called The City of God. Um, and uh, part of that is he wants to unpack this notion of there being two cities. There's the city of man, and then there's the city of, of God, um, or like the kingdom of God, as Jesus would, would use that, that language. Um, and what's really great is he refuses this idea that you can locate these side by side in the same reality, that they are constantly intermingled and overlapped. So for him, he wants to say, like, you could, you could go back to Exodus, and the city of God is... Um, uh, is, oh, sorry, uh, the city of man would be Pharaoh enslaving the Hebrews. The city of God is Moses rescuing the Hebrews. The city of God uh, is, uh, is when um, David, you know, uh, slays the tyrant Goliath. The city of man uh, is when that same David murders Uriah, his own soldier, uh, so that he can steal his wife. Um, that, that, you know, there is a way that within each of us individually, within all of our cultures and all of our societies, the city of God and the city of man are constantly overlapping with one another. And it's never possible to pull them apart and say, those people are the city of God. Those people are the city of man. Instead, you always have to recognize that we're always both. So, you know, there was a time probably five or six years ago where I was a grad student and I was completely broke and I was stressed out and I had five jobs and everything was going really, really terrible. Um, and I was at this church 
um, that I was working at at the time. And it was just before Christmas and I was going home to see my family for Christmas. And on my way out the door, someone handed me an envelope and said, Merry Christmas and walked away. Uh, and I got into my car and I opened it up. Um, and inside was just $50 cash um, because they had seen that I was struggling and they didn't want to say anything. They just knew that I needed a little bit of help. And I'll be honest, I got into that car and I cried and that's the kingdom of God. Like, man, somebody, somebody was enough of a family with me to realize I was struggling without me saying it and to intervene in a way that, that just lightened my load a little bit. And I was like, man, that is that, that's the kingdom of God. That's the family that, that this other kind of kinship that's being constructed here. But also that same church a year and a half later um, split because half of them uh, didn't want to be part of the PC USA uh, because they were too friendly to queer folks. So is that church the kingdom of God or is that or the city of God or is that church the city of man? Well, I think it's, it's always both. And I think that's the reality that this, the, the, the messy family of Christianity is always going to be both. And, and I think our job is to figure out how do we make it more the good one and less the bad one. Uh, that's the hard task. And I think it's, it's as simple and as difficult as that. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think, uh, Justin, I, we, we've got to have you back. Um, I can tell already you're going to need to be someone that we can, that we can get on here for, for these perspectives and, and thoughts on things. Again, this has been so useful and I love where you just landed there. Uh, I think that's a place I would love to land every conversation I ever have. And every podcast that we ever do is like, Hey, whatever you're believing and whatever you do and wherever you land with all this stuff, like be good. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's be Christian, be not Christian, be atheist, be, but be good to people like that's uh that's a beautiful place for us to get to in all this uh we will have so much more to say about marriage and sex and family uh in the the weeks to come thanks for listening i hope that you'll subscribe and we will talk to you again soon preacher do we really need to talk about all these bedroom things pandemic's still here feels like a race war is near but sure let's talk about the bible and sex wings preacher is god really this obsessed with everyone's sex life like he's got nothing better to do than to go peeping on you to make sure it's only ever hetero missionary style